Hello, this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service, where we bring you the latest in money, marketing, manufacturing, and yes, much, much more. Please review us, rate us, share us wherever you can. BBC podcasts are supported by advertising. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code Tara sagt Clark. The Global Story with smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story. Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts to find out more. Hello and welcome to World Business Report from the BBC World Service. I'm Roger Hearing. And on this edition, South Korean doctors refuse to go back to work despite government threats. We'll hear from one of the strikers. Also, are the tensions between the US and China really bad for trade? A drop in trade between the United States and China isn't necessarily negative. It could be. It could be a positive indication of diversification on both sides. That's the view of the United States trade representative. We'll hear more about why later. Also, the U.S. moves to stop personal data of Americans being harvested by foreign governments. And why is the gaming industry letting go thousands of its workers? And remember, you can email us at any time on world.business at bbc.co.uk. South Korea is dealing with another day of a doctor's strike. Most junior doctors there have so far defied a government order to return to work by the end of Thursday, despite the threat of legal action. About 80% of junior doctors walked out last week in protest against a decision to sharply increase the number of medical school places. They say training more doctors could lower the quality of a medical school education and reduce their pay. The authorities say the increase will address shortages linked to South Korea's rapidly aging population and a lack of doctors in rural areas. Well, these people in Seoul shared their views on the strike action. Where we live outside the city, there are no doctors anymore. The doctors are being too selfish. They've taken the public hostage. Well, at a news conference in Seoul, Ju Suhu, who's from the Korean Medical Association, which supports the doctors' walkout, warned of the consequences if their contracts were not renewed. Today is the day when the contracts of most interns, residents and fellows at training hospitals are expiring. In other words, if these doctors do not renew their contracts, there will legally be no interns, residents nor fellows at training hospitals from tomorrow after the termination of contracts. Well, earlier I spoke to one of the striking doctors. He's a trainee. We're not using his name because he's concerned about the consequences of speaking to the media. Junior doctors in South Korea work 80 hours legally, but um, unofficially we work more than um, 100 hours a week, coupled with low wages. Well, the main reason enduring this um, working condition is professionalism, where doctors want to deliver for the public. 
and B, hope for the future improvement in financial conditions after completing the training, which seems to have vanished due to the government policies. Well, unlike NHS or most of the other Western European countries where the public hospitals are run by public sectors, Korean hospitals are private hospitals running in public insurances, which tend to be low cost. So yeah, you, you, you're feeling as if you're being exploited. Is that what you're saying? You're not being paid properly for the work you do? That's one issue. So we are being exploited, but the government's scheme initiative to increase the uh, number of doctors by 2000, it's, it's about 70% increase in total number of doctors, which just met us with disbelief and has led to the personal resignation of most of the doctors. But, but isn't, so, isn't, the, isn't the idea to have more doctors a good thing? Because the ratio at the moment, as I understand it, between patients and doctors it isn't what it should be, and they need to have more doctors, particularly given an ageing population. The trainee doctors don't, do not believe that the number of doctors are low in, in the system, um, uh, as in what it should be. And there, there are reasons for this. So South Korea ranks among the top countries worldwide in terms of preventable mortality rates, um, life expectancy infant mortality rates and cancer-related mortality rates. And um, we have the highest rate of healthcare utilization and available hospital beds and healthcare accessibility globally. And uh, this achievements have been made possibly made possible um, by the doctors working hard. And even um, within the context of low medical fees, country also has a very high rate of increased number of doctors. So doctors are being produced a lot. And despite the aging population, um, we believe that the technological advances could cover um, the possible demand. Right. So you don't think they need more doctors, but why is it a problem that they would get more doctors? Because that has to be helpful, doesn't it? If the doctors are run uh, working in the public sectors, where, for example, in NHS, where most of the um, doctors want more doctors to be there so that um, they have a little um, decreased workload, Korean doctors want more workload and they um, are working a lot in order to be efficient. And also um, that system will bring um, financial benefit to most of the doctor because um, the system is run um, as fee-for-service um, in a private insurance, private hospital system. Okay, I understand the reasons why you are on strike, but what do you say to people who are in hospital in Korea now and are suffering because there aren't in, the, the, you, you are on strike? Uh, patients must be very worried and patients could be at risk if you carry on with the strike. Well, personally, I feel regretful and frustrated about the discomfort and possible harm caused to the public health and the medical system as a result of, well, junior doctors' individual resignations. Uh, but this is a system failure. So this system was functioning a month ago. We want a stable and well-functioning system, um, which is scientifically designed. And I believe there has been an element of healthcare populism prior to the April 10th, the Electoral Congress. There hasn't been enough evidence 
or plan for funding. And most of the doctors here in South Korea believe that this government's initiative will ruin the system. Okay, so what would it take to get you to go back to work? What would the government have to say or do? Korean Association of Interns and Residents have issued a statement calling for seven things. So the first is like suspension of the government initiatives and second, halt the plan of increasing the number of medical students by 2000 and expansion of staffing in um, training hospitals and uh, improvement of poor training environment for residents which includes um, working up to eight hours per week. So if, if the government did all those seven things, you would go back to work? Most of my colleagues are adamant the government initiative is entirely unacceptable and absurd emotionally and logically. And yesterday, only 294 uh, junior doctors have returned to work out of 9,997 junior doctors, despite the threat of imprisonment. And um, this is in line with demonizing doctors um, for the witch hunt, which has definitely demoralized those doctors being exploited. The views of one of the striking trainee doctors in Korea. Now, the United States trade representative, Catherine Tai, has told the BBC in an exclusive interview that the fall in bilateral trade between the United States and China is a positive development for both economies. Last year, for the first time in more than two decades, Mexico surpassed China as the leading source of goods imported by the United States. The shift reflects the growing tensions between Washington and Beijing, as well as U.S. efforts to import from countries that are friendlier. Ambassador Tai spoke to the BBC's Middle East business correspondent, Samir Hashmi, in Abu Dhabi at the 13th WTO ministerial conference that concluded earlier on Thursday. We knew, actually, several years ago that we needed to diversify U.S.-China trade that the dependencies going both ways were creating real vulnerabilities and increasing tensions. So a drop in trade between the United States and China isn't necessarily negative. It could be. It could be a positive indication of diversification on both sides. I haven't, I haven't looked at the specific data that you're pointing to, but I just want to address in a really sober way some of the data and statistics that we see and widen the lens to understand what the overall trends are. Now, on the eve of MC13, a report was released by your department, which criticized China for being the biggest challenge to the international trading system. Now, China has retaliated by accusing the United States of trade bullying and unilateralism. So there's this war of words going on, and this has kind of resurfaced the trade tension that has been the hallmark of this relationship over the last few years. How do you see these relations going ahead? I know that is something that everybody has a stake in because we are the two largest economies in the world. And that's why the World Trade Organization is actually a really important institution. It is a place where all of us have a seat and have a say in adapting and formulating the rules for all of us to be uh, playing by. I will say this, and one of the ways that the WTO is showing its age is that uh, the WTO came about at a time when uh, the economies in the world were different. And the economies that are here at the WTO have also grown. And China is a good example. When China joined the WTO in 2001, it was much 
smaller in footprint than it is today. And I think that China's economic development is creating many competitive pressures around the world. That is a challenge that the WTO is going to need to rise to meet. So you think the WTO needs to do more on that front in order to pull up China? Uh, is there more that we need to do at the WTO to address the uh, economic and competitive pressures um, that uh, many of us are feeling in the global economy because of the um, uh, economic and trade footprint of China and its particular um, system? Uh, yes, that is something we absolutely need to do. That is a part of this WTO reform project, which is the WTO is here to serve the interests of all of its members, large and small. Donald Trump is saying that he's going to raise tariff on Chinese goods if he comes back to office. Will the Biden administration also continue with the same policy, be tough on the Chinese, or even look at raising tariffs if they, they're back in office? President Biden has been clear that his trade policy needs to work for more Americans, and in particular, that American workers need to benefit from American trade policies. And we remain convinced that there is a way for us to have a version of globalization where countries and economies come together to build their middle classes together and not pit their workers and their middle classes against each other. United States Trade Representative Catherine Ty there. You're with World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code TARASAGCLARK. For just as long as Hollywood has been Tinseltown, there have been suspicions about what lurks behind the glitz and glamour. And for a while, Those suspicions grew into something much bigger and much darker. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I'm Una Chaplin, and from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service, this is Hollywood Exiles. It's about a battle for the political soul of America, and the battlefield was Hollywood. Search for Hollywood Exiles wherever you get your podcasts. Now, data is the currency of modern tech, and concern is growing about what we are unwittingly telling not just companies, but also governments about ourselves. U.S. President Joe Biden has just signed an executive order that will stop the sale and distribution of Americans' user data to what are described as countries of concern. The Department of Justice is going to draft specific restrictions on what kinds of data advertisers, marketing companies and other entities can or cannot sell to foreign powers or organizations. Well, I've been speaking about all this to Lily Jamali from the program Marketplace Tech. Well, we're talking about a wide range of information on American citizens. This includes biometrics data, things like fingerprints that can be used to identify an individual, financial records, data related to a person's health history, 
Um, geolocation is another one. So a real broad array. And the countries of concern, as the White House is calling them, include, of course, China and Russia. They top the list here, although interestingly, they are not named in this executive order. They have been able to purchase the kind of data that I mentioned from data brokers. Right now, a lot of what data brokers do, which is harvesting our personal information and selling it to interested parties, is perfectly legal. But this executive order aims to change that. Yeah, it's interesting, Lily, because, I mean, at the same time, the president's been worrying about uh, imports of electric vehicles from China and potentially data from them being harvested. So what's been the real motivation for putting this forward? Has there been a lot of data going to countries and organizations that the White House doesn't like? Yes, well, you make such a great point. I think that uh, national security is really top of mind. Geopolitics comes up almost immediately when you talk to people high up in the tech industry, as well as senior administration officials, who I I happened to interview one this week about electric vehicles and batteries. It came up within about two minutes of us sitting down together. So you're right on point there. And U.S. national security is a huge motivator here. I mean, allowing data to be bought and sold like this can leave the U.S. vulnerable. And just to give you an example of the implications, just think about what a U.S. adversary could do with information on an active duty service member, someone in the military whose data are out there like the rest of all of us. Personal information about their finances, whether they're in debt, the financials of family members can be very valuable to a foreign adversary. A researcher at Duke University here in the U.S. recently released a report about how it can create opportunities for black Blackmail or make service members targets for foreign intelligence services. I think the rise of TikTok also plays into this. The social media company is, of course, owned by China's ByteDance. It has 150 million American users. So you talk to people in Washington and in Silicon Valley, there is real concern about the vast troves of data that that particular platform has made available to China. So I guess then the problem really comes down to enforcement. I mean, it's very well making these kind of orders, but how do you make sure that they're obeyed? Yes, the million-dollar question, Roger. There are still many months to go as the administration approaches rulemaking on this front. The enforcement piece is going to take a while. Our understanding is the approach may end up looking kind of like what sanctions laws look like here in the U.S., where companies are required to monitor who they're doing business with. But that can be really hard to enforce. And sanctions laws are notoriously easy to evade. You know, what happens, say, if a data broker in the U.S. sells data to a third party who then goes and sells it to a foreign adversary? There is a potential loophole that has to be considered. So at this point, it's not completely clear what enforcement is going to look like. Lily Jamali there of Marketplace Tech. Now let's talk about what's been going on on the markets today. Kerry Leahy, the economist at the University of Columbia, joins me now. Uh, Kerry, thanks for being with us once again. I mean, one thing to say, I mean, the Nasdaq finished on a record high today. That must say something about the nature of the U.S. economy. Uh, Yes, it does. I mean, it's almost unstoppable. I mean, as I've said to our listeners before, even if a third of the hype uh, regarding AI and the rest turns out to be true, you could probably see the profitability in these companies that will underpin how strongly they've been going. So clearly there's some froth out there in the marketplace, but it is saying good things about the belief that uh, AI is going to have just uh, very powerful effects about productivity and profitability 
uh, in the months and years ahead. NASDAQ, of course, reflecting uh, the tech stocks mainly. But I mean, let's talk more widely about the economy because we also had U.S. inflation figures out. Now, it's slightly controversial. And help me on this, Kerry, because the, the figure that we had reflects one measure of inflation. But there are several out there. And it's important to know the one, I guess, that the Fed is taking into consideration. Well, the difficulty, of course, is that uh, the average individual, including you and me, thinks of the inflation rate as the one measured in the CPI, which is running about three quarters of a percentage point higher than the Federal Reserve's preferred measure, which is the so-called uh, PCE price index. And the advantages to the PCE price index is, is the statisticians make some guesses on stuff that isn't really in the marketplace. The nice thing about the CPI, and one of the reasons why it's higher than the Fed's preferred measure, uh, is that it only uh, estimates things they can really put their hands on. So it's, it's more goods and real, real based. Whereas the um, the Fed's preferred index makes some guesses on things like medical care costs and the like, and that's quite controversial. But it is running lower at about uh, 2.4%. But I still think the average American, and I think we should keep looking at the CPI, because when all is said and done, I don't think the Fed's measure is really any better than the CPI. But I guess the Fed's measure is what might lead to uh, interest rate cuts pretty soon. At least the market seems to think that's there. We we heard from Raphael Bostic, one of the uh, leading figures in the Fed today, actually saying pretty much there were going to be cuts uh, in the summer. I mean, maybe it's not a great revelation. What's your thought on where this is going? Well, it is certainly moving in, the, in this direction. Even though the inflation evidence was tamed today because we already got the bad news and knew that uh, January wasn't such a great uh, month for uh, uh, in, inflation, uh, the Fed is pretty much committed saying that the inflation rate is, stays about where it is now or even a little bit worse. They're still ready to uh, cut rates in the second half of the year. I just don't think the call for March, which was v- very enthusiastically given by the marketplace as little as uh, four to six weeks ago, that's not going to happen. And I'm not 100% sure it's going to happen by June, but sometime by by uh, Labor Day, there'll probably be a rate cut. All right. Well, let's talk about some of the other things that are going on. Bitcoin, um, we've been, you know, if we talk about it from time to time, it always is, by almost definition, uh, the most volatile of all things. But it did crash through the uh, the 60K dollars uh, earlier. And I mean, it seems to be on a bit of a rise at the moment. Or is this just froth? Well, I don't know if it's necessarily froth, but the market is so volatile that it really took a a jump today with no real major change in underpinning. There is this belief among the devotees of this currency that it's going to get some implicit uh, regulatory, uh, not so much backing, but at least less interference. And I think that's probably what's giving the uh, marketplace a bid uh, in the last, uh, last couple of weeks. Okay. And finally, there was this caught my eye, uh, Gary, that... Oprah Winfrey, I mean, pretty well-known person, of course, uh, one of the biggest media figures, I suppose, in the U.S. Uh, she's leaving the board of Weight Watchers, and that seemed to really go for Weight Watchers' uh, share price. I mean, this is clearly a very important move uh, in that world. Well, absolutely. Uh, not only did she become a, uh, a director on the board uh, almost 10 years ago, but she she bought about 10% of the company, so she's a major investor. So for her to step away... And even though the press statements say it's not because of her problems with the firm, you can't help but think that something isn't, doesn't smell right. And mm-hmm. she's a almost revered figure in media here in the States and comes up as a, a, a stout fellow, so to speak. 
and and so her stepping away is not so good for the uh, good for the stock, particularly since it's getting hit by all the uh, new products that are out in the marketplace. Yeah, Ozempic, of course, and all that. That's a complicated area. Thanks so much for being with me, Kerry. Kerry Leahy there, economist at the University of Columbia. Now, take a listen to this. The Jedi is a threat. Now that we have this... Well, that, uh, you may be unsurprised to learn, was a trailer for a game. It was last year's game, Star Wars Jedi Survivor. Well, the team behind it were expecting to make another game in the Star Wars universe... But now they're not. Electronic Arts have cancelled it, along with laying off 5% of its staff. Now, this comes after Sony announced its plans to get rid of 900 PlayStation staff, and that was announced on Tuesday. And the pattern was set back in January when Microsoft announced plans to get rid of 1,900 people in its gaming division. And yet, the industry has never been bigger or more profitable. It's worth, according to most estimates, around $300 billion globally. So, what's happening to gaming? Well, joining me is someone who knows, and that's Ash Parrish, video games reporter for The Verge. Ash, thanks for being with us again. Um, Thanks for having me. would, Would it be right to see these layoffs as something, suggesting something's going wrong with the gaming industry? I think what's happening is that a lot of video game development, it takes a long time to bring a game to market, right? So you make these projections about what people will want five and however many years uh, in the past. And then by the time the game is ready to come to market, attitudes have shifted. So you're seeing that a lot with a lot of um, live service games where um, people just don't have the money or the time to sink into new live service games. They're really hungering for more single player experiences. And at the same time, single player experiences, especially the ones from the big AAA studios are getting more and more expensive to develop. So even though those games are in high demand, and the amount of copies those games need to sell in order to offset their costs is also going up and up and up. And it's just getting harder for these companies to, you know, make their profit margins. Yeah, I wondered, there was another headline that caught my eye, which was uh, about uh, the maker of Grand Theft Auto telling uh, the staff Rockstar Games, asking workers to return to the office five days a week. And people saying, well, is this maybe actually a way of getting rid of people? Because a lot of game developers actually don't really want to come into the office. That's part of the reason, yes. This this is a way for Rockstar to potentially offload some costs in the way of employees without having to have their name in the big headline saying that they're getting rid of employees, especially ahead of a big release like GTA 6. On the other hand, Rockstar specifically has had a lot of problems with leaks. Um, Last year, there was a huge data breach that leaked a lot of early footage of GTA 6, and the trailer for the game was leaked ahead of time. So one of the other reasons for this mandatory return to office is to hopefully tighten up security. Okay, so if you're saying essentially the way these games are going, they don't need the number of people actually doing it that they did before, essentially. Is this part of a move, as many people feel, towards AI in many areas getting rid of jobs? Is that what's happening here? We simply don't need, if you like, the designers, creatives in the way we used to. I hope it's not signaling a good replacement of workers with AI. More than that, it's Back in 2020 with the pandemic, uh, there was a huge growth in the video game industry and a lot of projections pegged that growth to continue. And that hasn't happened. So while these game studios have like 
you know, ramped up uh, recruiting just so they can be bigger and better. The market just hasn't borne that out. So they're having to tighten their belts and get rid of a lot of people, unfortunately, that we're seeing the kinds of catastrophes that we're seeing right now. So that's very interesting. You're actually saying there is almost a downturn in one sense because they overprojected. But going forward, Mm -hmm. is that likely to to be the the, the way that basically we aren't quite absorbing as many games as we used to? No, we're definitely not. A lot of uh, (laughs) attention has been split amongst these really big games as a service games. And that's where a lot of people are spending their money. And we just don't have the money to spend on other all of the millions and games that come out for the year and but i think as we go forward that these growths will kind of taper off we're not going to see the kind of like growth and acceleration that we have in these companies like we did back in 2020 hopefully these companies will have learned their lesson in that regard yeah because you see how much microsoft spent on activision blizzard and everything went there they've got to see some return haven't they Yes, they do. The, but Microsoft is seeing a return on that. Um, with they had a huge like double digit jump right after the acquisition went through and finalized. So you know it's boring, it's bearing out. But at the same time, you know you don't need all those people working under that company. Well, we'll see how it all progresses. It's interesting a little downturn in the gaming market, not something I thought I'd hear. Ash, thanks for talking to us. Ash Parrish, their video games reporter for The Verge, talking about that move in gaming. Don't listen to us then or go back to your game or listen to us. Anyway, that's World Business Report.